Hey guys, what's up? It's Zemet here with a after hours recording of Cartel Aristocrats. We're all sort of snowed in this week, and as a result, we thought we'd just record something with a couple shop owners. I'm joined by perennial guest Ed Wynn, buyer for Kerwin's Game Store. Of course, my co-hoster Jim Casali down in the sunny part of Florida. And we're joined right now with one of the buyers from Wizards Tower. Jeff, if you want if you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves and talk about exactly what you do. You introduced them, and then you want them to introduce themselves again? Is that well, is that what you just did? I mean, we could extrapolate. For example, we could say that Ed is located in New York, and you know they didn't have a booth at GP Louisville, and they haven't had a booth for a while, but maybe it might be looking into it. You could say that Jeff has runs the booth with the giant electronic buy boards, and that they do inventory literally as it's coming in, which is something I've never seen before at Grand Prix. We could talk about the fact that you're a beach bum, Jim. Where exactly do you want me to start? I'm not a beach bum. I hate the beach. Sand, <laughs> sand is the worst. It gets in every crevice of your body, and there's no way to get rid of it. It's fucking miserable. So Ed, Jeff, and I were at GP Louisville. Now, Jeff, from your point of view, was it a good GP, a bad GP? What, how is it different from other GPs besides the fact it was Legacy? Um, from other GPs, it differentiated in the sense that like, for Legacy-wise, it was bad. I found Sunday was like the worst day in comparison to Friday and Saturday. And in terms of uh, electronic billboards, I found they were successful, but a lot more people were irritated by being so, quote, slow. Um, and that's why Andrew was focusing on high-end cards, and I was more or less stripping through um, standard cards. But uh, overall, we were lucky to be in the position we were. We wanted that booth in terms of placement, but others weren't so successful. And for those that weren't at GP Louisville, their booth was quite literally right next to where all the players were playing. So it was one of the first booths you saw when you were done playing the round. They just had their buy signs right there. Now, Ed was playing in the event, which I found a little odd. But, uh, you know, I guess vendors got to get their game on sometimes. Was there anything you noticed just walking around Ed or like anything within the legacy format that you saw that was different? Uh, for the most part, like, I actually didn't end up playing. I was going to register on Friday, and then I didn't feel like paying $80 for a Grand Prix. I had, like, a 14-card sideboard, don't know how to play my deck. So I just went out to the casino that night instead. We got back at, like, 4 in the morning, and then I was deathly ill for the rest of Saturday. And let me um, say, since this isn't a cartel podcast, this is just after hours, that casino was pretty nice. Like, what? I would go back there again. Were you at Horseshoe? or Yeah, went to Horseshoe yeah. Saturday night. Yeah, it was pretty nice. Uh, definitely worth going. It's about like 20 minutes away, so kind of annoying to get to, especially at the end of a long day. But uh, for the most part, like I think it was a pretty typical Star City Grand Prix. Um, having booth at one, I like maybe Jeff, you can weigh on this, but I was kind of irked how Star City does their booths. Like usually, they're instead of being along the wall like most other Grand Prix, they have back-to-back booths that are only separated by like a thin veil. I've always found that kind of odd, especially since Star City doesn't give you the option to do an island booth. Uh, Jeff, what do you think about that? Yeah, I've never been a fan, but at the same time, because they are the ones running the GPs, I guess they have this say and they want some sort of advantage. Um, and that's our main, like, that's the reasoning we wanted our position was strictly because, like, if you want to compete, if you want to compete with the best, you've got to be the best. So we just wanted to be right next to them. And we knew that Hallelujah pretty much always likes the back end. I'm not sure if their placement, if we did take ours, I'm not sure if they would have been where we were. 
but they're typically on the back end of us on a usual basis. So I'm not too sure. Yeah. And so what do you guys do that's different than most vendors? I've sort of explained how you guys like look at the computer every time you're buying in cards, but like, does having these electronic buy boards give you an advantage over other vendors or like tracking all those stuff that comes in? Yeah, so what it does is more or less our inventory is directly, as soon as somebody comes up and buys something or even sells something to us, it directly goes into a system. So for instance, if you sell us 10, 200 gear hooks, a 10 a piece, or if you were do this field, we were buying them a 10 a piece, it would immediately go into a system. So if we had no gear hooks in the showcase, we could know exactly what lot they were bought in. So we could grab them immediately for a customer and then therefore provide them or provide a better like in-depth inventory to customers wanting cards or buying cards, we would know exactly how many we'd have. I think as a whole, like the um, the billboard idea is great. Um, a few years ago, like no vendors ever had a TV or any sort of like electronic display for their buy lists. And I think this weekend there were three or four of them that have it. It's becoming more and more common. It just looks way cleaner. It's easier to follow. It's easier to change on the fly. Um, I actually am curious about the inventory system, though. That's something I might have to look into the future. It just seems like such a good way to be more, Jesus Christ, as a giant bug just laying in front of me. Um, it's something I'll have to be, uh, probably, I'll probably look into. It's probably like a good way it, just to keep track of things because I know at the end of the weekend when there, when you have multiple buyers, sometimes you just, uh, you you thought you only buy, you bought like, you know, 10 copies or whatever you need to fill your inventory, especially on slow movers. Sometimes you just have like 20 or something because people just bought more than they thought. The lack of communication between um, as you guys go, a board spray static. Is that Ed's side or my side? No, I think that's Ed. Okay. So, Jim, um, as someone who's more of a customer at GPs, what do you want to see when you're walking by these booths? Do you want to see power? Do you want to see, like, buy boards who has the highest buy price? Do you want to see, like, who has the best deals? I mean, generally when I go to buy cards, I'm I come with, like, a list and I already know how much I want to at least like start out paying. Um, but generally, I, I like cards that are priced and organized easily so that I can find what I'm looking for. It's definitely miserable having to like interrupt somebody to ask them, hey, do you have this like expedition or whatever? Because it's not in their case or it's not like organized in a way that makes sense. Like some some vendors just kind of like whenever they get something in, they just kind of like throw it in the in a bunch of cases in front of them and don't organize it, and that just like irks me to no end. And so, as a as a vendor, uh, Jeff, when someone walks up to you, do you want them to have a list, or do you want them to be like, I don't know what I want. You should sell me on something. Well, from like my previous experiences as a salesman, I'd much rather have a list. And I can pretty much, especially with our inventory system, I can tell you exactly what we have and we don't have. If somebody comes up and they don't know what they want, I'm not going to really pitch them to them. I'm just going to show like the showcases, foils, non-foils, legacy, standard, whatever it may be. And if they want something great, uh, but I'm there as a buyer more or less. Like we do have, the owner was a salesperson. We had me and Andrew as a buyer. And then we had uh, like Jack of all trades, who's Brittany. And she was just there to do whatever. But I'd rather just do my thing and buy rather than be a salesperson at a magic event. Yeah, so it's definitely interesting with the booths to um, 
see exactly what people have for sale and like what exactly is going on with uh, the buy boards and all that. And yeah, I think like, I know Haru, yeah, they used to just have the electronic one and like that was it. But like now they're like updating them and they have like their buys of them the hour or whatever and it's like a ticking down thing so like ensures that people come back to their booths or whatever but i think you guys really have a good operation right now based out of canada so is you're in canada right for viewers that are uh tuning in for this yes i'm in canada ottawa ontario canada the capital so how does currency arbitrage play into that like will you guys go to a grand prix if the canadian dollar is low it hurts. Like, I don't think, especially Dave and Gamekeeper, I also deal with on occasion, Moreau. Both of them don't want really to factor that in. They just want to stock the inventory. They can't really not attend a GP just because of how the American dollar is doing in comparison to the Canadian dollar. They just want to satisfy their customers. So, interesting. And of course, I'm not sure if he'll be commenting on this episode, but we also have Mike from Tales of Adventure, and soon we'll have Paul Feudo from MTG Deals also stop by to give their thoughts on the GP grind, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, I am here. Okay. So this is Mike. Uh, he is... What position do you have in Tales of Adventure for those that are listening to this live? Uh, 100% of Tales of Adventure, and we'll be at every... USGP this year. And so factoring that in, uh, what are the sort of things that you want to come to your booth when uh, when people come up to sell? Do you want the stuff that's like a higher profit margin, but it's harder to move, like alpha beta stuff? Or do you guys want the stuff that you know you'll sell on TCG and you'll get paid for by the time you're hitting the next GP? Uh, I want real legacy cards, uh, nothing foil, and things in quantity. If you say, oh yeah, I have 75 copies of Heart of Kirin and I want $12.7 a piece, you know, I am very much okay with buying all of them at whatever fractional amount of money that you ask for. And so for longtime listeners of Cartel, as Jim knows for sure, like we've had add on a bunch, we've had other vendors on as well. Most times when you go to a Grand Prix, people are going to be looking for the cards that they can actually sell and not like the high-end stuff necessarily, unless it's a specific vendor. It's just something that like these guys have to pay an enormous amount of money to get a booth. They have to pay an enormous amount of money to fly their people out, to get hotels, all the other costs that come associated with it. And as a result, like you should be ogring their, your stuff to them or you should be selling them stuff that they know they can move. Cause like, as Ed had said on the past, when I had all this alpha beta stuff, he didn't want to invest any money in it because his money would be spent better elsewhere. So there's just sort of a theme that comes along with the GP sellers, I would say. Yeah. There's kind of this thing where minimal amount of a particular uh, generic card in a, in a short period of time, um, 30 days have sold over a hundred Elspeth Suns champions buying a lot of something like that whereas the single alpha force field i had to buy in a collection three months ago i still own yeah and um does the to for all of you guys that own or run boost does the to determine whether or not you're going to have a booth or is it you need to hit every gp because if you don't you like can't afford to keep it up this goes for ed jeff mike or paul it's it's any Anyone's answer here? Um, I'll go ahead and take this first. This past year, 
um, there's four different TOs, each of them have four or five GPs, and they've all kind of said, hey, if you do all the GPs, we'll give you we'll give you a little bit of money off, or we'll make some other concession up front. As a package deal, it ended up kind of being worth it uh, for you know, Fireball GPs. Uh, I'm actually doing the international ones, which is three in Europe, all in France. They made the deal so sweet where I'm going to get one of the top two or three booth spots in the room, but have to spend a little bit more money by doing these these shows that are going to be a little tougher to do. And for Ed and Wizards Tower, was it more we just don't want to be on the train this year, or like we de- we don't necessarily want to spend all that money and like risk? Because for smaller vendors, you're essentially risking a ton of capital and really going deep on how expensive it is to run a booth. Was this just more like, eh, it wasn't our year, maybe if prices go down, or we can only afford to do this money and we'll just pick and choose the ones that we want? Uh, personally, I think it's a slightly better strategy to be more selective. Um, like it's the, like Star City and uh, Shell Fireball, because they have international shows as well, they obviously try to incentivize you by offering you a booth discount. So you get a small percentage off if you sign up for all their Grand Prix, and they offer incentives, um, like Mike said, um, such as uh, getting uh, this bug is really starting to bother me. Um, this is such as getting discounts uh, with them, or you be you're able to prioritize certain boost spots. Um, but personally, for me, I think that like those incentives are more or less uh, negated by the fact that sometimes you just have crappy Grand Prix. Like realistically, I like. Like some of these international ones, like obviously going to them, there's perks, but you have to deal with additional costs of uh, going overseas, uh, whatever. But there's just some places I think that just are incredibly unappealing, whether it be the time um, of the year that's at. Uh, it's like some of them are towards the tail end of a set release or whatever. Like, for example, Orlando, that's run by Star City in, um, I believe it's the last weekend of March. It's 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 a limited Grand Prix. It's going to be the very very end of Kaladesh block. Uh, it's during spring break. I have a hard time believing that that's going to be a successful show um, due to kind of all those factors together. And yeah, you might get a reduced booth. You might get a good deal on it. You might have a good position. But I'm not sure that's worth uh, spending a whole another Grand Prix amount of work and investing just to kind of get a long term discount. For uh, Jeff- on that note. You might have Jeffrey get to in real quick before you banner back. Uh, so for the Canadian vendor, is it just more worth it to be like, we're only doing this money because we don't know what the currency is going to be at? No, not even close. Like in terms of Wizards Tower, it's again, like they, they are very uh, fond of SCG. So they've pretty much signed on this whole year to all SCG events. On behalf of like Gamekeeper, for instance, I'm doing all his events that he is more or less TO for. So again, like it's not it's not even close to what the dollars are or what it could be at. Like there's no really telling in terms of predicting what the dollar might do for us, at least for us Canadians. So we must just therefore just in terms of SCG events, China Fireball, China Fireball. Um, I don't think we've had any interest, or at least Tower hasn't had any interest yet. And just in terms of locations, we're much more keen on doing like Orlando, like Ed said. I think it goes like Orlando, uh, Vegas, and a few others in the later of the year. But they're only going to be doing SCG events this year. Gamekeeper will be doing Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, which is pretty much his own. 
but then I'm going to base it off of dollar again. Okay. And so Mike, you guys have a competing fact, competing interest maybe when it comes to Ed's point of view, if you want to expand on that. Uh, I think Orlando is actually going to be a, a very good show. It's the weekend after a set release. Air Masters 3. Not a, not a real set. Uh, Orlando is also a cheaper show logistically. It's the weekend before Grand Prix San Antonio. So you can do some cool employee tricks where, hey, we're going to fly to Orlando. We're going to go spend three days in the parks on vacation or doing whatever in Orlando and then fly to San Antonio. Orlando is one of the cheapest airports to fly to. So you're going to save 15 or 20% on, on your total cost of doing a show because the logistics of it being Orlando. Better hotels in the area. And Orlando is a very large, nice convention center as well. So I think that show is going to be okay. Star City also has no international shows this year. It's only Channel and Cascade for US-facing TOs that are also international in this year. Now, Jim, as someone in Orlando, what is the normal turnout for events down there? Do you think it's going to be good at all? Do you think like there's a lot of natives that are going to go, or do you think everyone's just going to fly into Florida? I don't know, man. It's really inconvenient for the people that live in the middle of the East Coast. Like people from like Virginia, the Virginia area, like don't want to drive all the way down. Usually, the closest Grand Prix, if there's not in Florida, is Atlanta, and that's like still a seven or eight hour drive from Orlando to get there. So it's it's really unfortunate. It's not in driving distance of a lot of other big cities, but there are, there are definitely a lot of people in Florida that will go to that Grand Prix. Uh, I lived in Jacksonville for a little while, and I have friends in Tampa and Miami. So all of the major cities will have people come to Orlando for the Grand Prix. It's just like I don't know if there's a lot of people like that will casually make the drive, like in you know in Roanoke or or just like in Virginia in general, like Richmond. I think Gr Grand Prix Richmond was really big when it was that modern Grand Prix because it's just a very centralized location. So people from New York can get there. People from Georgia can get there, but Florida just kind of is kind of a shitty state to have to drive to because it's surrounded mostly by water and not by other states. Paul, are you guys going to Orlando or do you not know yet? Paul is apparently dead. Okay. Well, I guess Paul died in California and he wasn't able to make it Oregon Trail style all the way back. I think he's still figuring out his audio though because he was asking me questions earlier about it. Um, so as booth prices have been increasing, do you guys think that we're going to start seeing a narrowing amount of vendors at HGP or do you think the TOs don't really care as long as they can keep getting booth spots? Like, yes, there, there, there's so many spots for booths, but do you think people are going to keep putting money in every year to do this? Or do you think that like, for example, cool stuff doesn't need to do this anymore because they have so many shops and can get inventory locally? Uh, I'll start this one off. I guess you, so. So that last point, you could argue that because school, cool stuff has so much stuff, uh, so many shops uh, to stock in addition to their online store, they probably are the ones that benefit the most. Because uh, talking with some of their guys this past weekend, it sounds like they don't necessarily care. They don't sell on TCG Player. They don't use like eBay, Amazon. I think they said they use a little bit of eBay, but for the most part, it doesn't matter to them. They. Uh, they will, they will always be there, and then they basically just go off of what they sell in-store and what uh, what their online store does. Um, so they, they, they probably stand to benefit the most, but the stores, I think, like, 
like us, we use mostly TCG player. We have, uh, we, we use eBay as well. Um, it's harder for us because, uh, excuse me. Um, it's the, the turnaround time on TCG player is, is much, much higher. It takes us longer to process everything and being able to basically flip that into your next Grand Prix. It's, it's a little bit harder. Whereas cool stuff, if they pay less on fees, they have they have a lot more ways to mitigate the cost of the Grand Prix. It's probably easier for them to basically continue to do them because basically like any bad Grand Prix, I guess, which we see more and more often, it's easily mitigated by by their size. Yeah, I think from like a Canadian standpoint, I don't I don't think we will I don't think any Canadian stores, for instance, like Asafas Gamers, for instance, they've pretty much stopped all U.S. GPs. They target the European GPs. Um, again, I think that's more or less the dollar arbitrage, like you were talking about, Exhibit. In terms of um, Wizards Tower or Gamekeeper or Stronghold, who might occasionally do U.S. GPs, until we nosedive at a GP, I don't think it'll really matter. Um, but then again, I think GP Las Vegas will speak volume to the future of like GPs because of like 40, 50 vendors at GP Vegas, regardless of it having three events, it's still going to be very costly for the average Magic player to attend. And if that bombs for any Canadian vendor, like it's not going to look pretty for the future of vending for GP vendors at least. Mike, are you okay with the boosts increasing in price because you can just sort of pass those on to your customers slowly? Or like you still think it's profitable to vend as long as you have a good reputation and people are bringing you cards? Oh, I think it's incredibly difficult to figure out if you're making or losing money in this industry. Um, from a financial perspective, you have all of these different widgets that move in price on both the buy side and the sell side. And you're operating entirely in cash and basically everything you're doing. So the bookkeeping is really high. And I'm sure there's a bunch of shows I'm going to lose money at this year. And at the end of the year, you kind of hope you're up. Um, sometimes you have to keep doing shows just to be able to pay your employees at the end of the day, have stuff for them to do. It's tough. I, I'd like the booths to, to be a little bit cheaper. And I really thought when I got into this about two years ago that the industry was at a point where it was too financially difficult or financially costly for people to get in uh, between paying for the booth up front and having money to buy with at the show. But somehow there's still a couple couple new people still entering the game this year, and I don't, I don't get it. I mean, one of them, for example, is uh, Jameson, but he started his own company I, after they split from Card Market, if I remember. So I think he already like knew the market to get in, and as a result, it wasn't really a big deal for him. Yeah, I think uh, if you're coming from the industry, it's okay. Uh, I'm talking about someone like like Moose Loot is a is a new addition. Oh, Bernie, GP scene yeah. From Midwest GPs, uh, Pastimes GPs last year was I think their first one. Yep. Uh, Jim, as someone who actually goes to cool stuff on the regular, do you think that they have enough inventory and like people coming in like size wise for their events that like it's not a big deal for them if they have them or not? I'm not sure what you're at. Like, what do you mean? For boosts at GPs, do you think cool stuff's to the point where it's like, eh, whatever? Do you think they're like, oh, they're really running out of cards. They better go to a GP and get a bunch of inventory for their locals? 
I mean, if they if it's anything other than standard cards, they have to buy them at Grand Prix. They don't like. There's no legacy scene here. There's no legacy like ecosystem. So that's probably why they, if you've noticed, they just don't pay particularly well. They're not very aggressive at trying to get those types of cards. But especially for modern and like EDH stuff, which is pretty popular here, people don't sell their cards often enough at this point. Like everyone in Florida that has a collection that doesn't want it anymore has already sold it. So there's not really a ton of old cards that you can just like dig up from people and because edh players are like black holes for magic cards you just have an endless stream of people that need them so do you guys think that format wise what's the best bet or does it not matter as long as the card seller do you guys want to like uh target standard cards or modern cards or edh cards the most when it comes to even being in your shops respectively, like some guy and Mike, you might not have to do this, but you know, some guy comes in with a binder and he's like, I want this revised dual end on your shelf. And he's got a standard page, a modern page and an EDH page, which cards do you want to take from which format? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be high selling stuff like chromatic lantern, but like in general, what are the cards you want to take the most? Uh, in a, in a grand prix type setting where you have to, pay fairly competitive numbers overall i think the modern cards are where it's at that's kind of the sweet spot between these cards are desirable they sell fairly well and there's a real margin ability whereas standard cards have a very high turnover rate but if you're not priced perfectly accurately online you may not sell the card and then the price drops by 25 cents you might not sell it for just, hey, I haven't sold any Chandra Flame Collars and I paid $12 on them. Now this card's selling for $7 because no one's playing it. Ed? Uh, I, I think Mike kind of touched on it over earlier and he hit on it best. Basically, the cards are um, cards that just have very, very high turnover rate. That's ultimately what I look at. I care a little bit less about the margin. Um, mainly because that's largely mitigated by in-store sales. In-store sales, you, you basically get to set the price. Um, but in, term, in terms of online, if it turns over fast, the, like, yeah, like paying fees to PayPal, Crystal Commerce, uh, credit cards, et cetera, like that sucks. But if it's turning over quickly, it ultimately doesn't matter as long as you make money on it. And in the long run, you basically have to kind of hope that, you know, like the ones that you hit on are basically outweigh the ones that you that you basically just pay too much for at a grand prix and i think the cards that actually do that best are actually standard oddly enough um when you can get them for cheap they're generally pretty cheap and your losses aren't that big and when you do hit your margins are very high uh either way you have very high turnover so in a few weeks it hopefully balances itself out whereas something like modern you like the bands are uh, the bands were kind of a big swing uh, this week, but you can't guarantee, especially on the more expensive stuff, that you'll move it. Zenicar fetches have had literally zero velocity uh, for us. Things like Blood Moon, once people have those cards, they're generally not really getting more. Um, like those types of cards, like they they do have decent turnover rate, but it's just kind of hard in the long run, especially if you have a somewhat set narrow base inside your uh, a set narrow player base inside your store in terms of people who will want to be changing decks or changing up what they do.
And so today we had an announcement by the president of Hasbro that they're rehauling magic online. They're changing magic. They're doing all these new things, all these new uh, buzzwords in the announcement, essentially to make magic and other wizards of the coast um, intellectual property, like the best thing ever. Um, if they get magic online, right. Do you guys expect the paper market to slowly go away? Or do you think that that will only fuel people transferring over from Hearthstone, et cetera? So do you think like if they get magic online to be a good flashy program, like we'll see sales increase or do you think people will be like, why am I playing this in paper? I'm going to sell all my cards, buy all the cards in magic online and never have to worry about it again. Like, do you guys, are you guys scared of the new magic online platform that they're announcing or is it just like, whatever, we'll roll with it. Any publicity is good publicity. Big believer in the social aspect of magic in the, some of the most memorable stories, probably any of us are going to have involve getting lost after going to dinner at this GP three years ago, or the story I tell all the time about how one of my friends got pulled over driving back from GP Quebec city in uh, 2011 doing like 85 in the rain by a uh, state trooper with a heavy Boston accent. And that people just really like doing things that are social. They like winning in person and any anything going on like that is going to make magic better uh, i also think one of the easiest ways for magic online to be monetized is by the reprinting and especially the aggressive reprinting of cards it only makes money when they sell product not when uh, a major online bot chain sells stuff so if there's a mono white death and taxes deck that has three caracas and a rashadan port in it for 25 dollars watsi's going to sell a bunch of those and port's not going to be over 100 tickets anymore. Editor Jim? Um, I mean, like, I like the fact that this is the first time in a long time that you can be particularly optimistic about any kind of Wizards of the Coast digital offerings because it looks like they're finally going to strip it down and start over in the best possible way with the least amount of turnover, I guess is the best way to do it, say it. But um, yeah, I, I think that even if magic online is redone and is awesome, just as awesome as hearthstone, there's just too much, there's too much history in playing in person with physical cards that, that the game could just cease to exist in paper. Like, at least not in our lifetimes or while we're playing the game or selling or buying the cards like 50 years from now couldn't tell you maybe there's like some weird law you can't print on paper anymore or some shit like and cards cease to exist anymore and they're just like a relic of the past but if they get magic online right and people could play i think it just brings more people into the game and really that's all you that's if you're selling cards that's really all you ever want you want more people to sell cards to the more people there are to sell cards the better it is because at some point in time, it becomes all worth it to open seal product, and there's just infinite of that. Yeah, I'm like I'm I, I'm in agreement with uh, the rest of them here. I think paper magic it just has too much history behind it. It's not like it's gonna go cold turkey. And even if a magic online is a resounding success, their target market is going to be people who don't already play magic, rather than try and convert people who play paper magic into playing magic online if they don't already. 
Now, the other thing to look at for everyone here is Magic was on a 30% a year growth, and we've seen that slow down into single digits. We've seen sort of modern sort of fall out of the wayside. We don't have $100 fetch lands anymore where you can trade four of them into like a into underground season, trade those into power conversely. Uh, with the market sort of, you know, there's still spikes in attracts and all that, but with uh, the growth of Magic overall slowing down, have you guys noticed that at all in turnout at your shops? I know a lot of local shops have had a problem, even with the standard showdown on the amount of people that have been showing up. Have you guys noticed anything with Wizards' new program of handing out booster packs, or has your player base sort of grown or stayed the same or even gone down for standard mainly? Uh, I guess I'll leave this off. So the problem with uh, us is our location is kind of in an uh, like an undesirable area in the sense that the town of Catskill we're just way too small. It's hard to it's hard to actually have any like serious player base here because the players that come in are pretty much set. You have you know um, we fire like uh, Commander uh, Friday Night Magic. You get a fair amount of people for that, but they're pretty much set. Um, and the fact that it's hosted on the same night as regular FNM means that it's very hard to find standard. We don't fire drafts at all. Uh, there's just not enough people here. So the turnout for us, it necessarily hasn't increased or decreased. It's just remained very steady. But it just makes it that much harder to actually draw people in into standard. Um, the fact that this past standard and the past few standards, in my mind, have been particularly miserable doesn't help the fact that it's it's already hard to kind of draw in that crowd on top of the miserable standard and i'm not sure standard showdown necessarily did anything to improve that i think it was just kind of a quick i guess like slap a band-aid on like a gunshot wound type fix that wizards throws out rather than trying to deal with the chronic problem which is there's problematic cards like emrakul and smugglers copters in the format that made it inherently unfun for people to play Jim, as the most competitive player here who actually went to the Pro Tour, what have you noticed anything about turnout locally? I mean, honestly, I haven't played a sanction. I played one sanctioned match of Magic since I went to the Pro Tour. And a lot of that is just, it just isn't fun. And, in, in, and the grind just isn't fun. Um, I don't know what happened recently. Like, it, it didn't feel like we just did a 180, but. I can understand how people could just get burnt out because we just kind of had the same shit for like nine months. It feels like like you just could, the, a lot of a lot of what I feel like is kind of happening here. And I know this is going to sound overly simplistic and just kind of maybe maybe more of a symptom of the problem than the actual problem itself. But like there hasn't been a, a like a little creature aggressive red deck for like almost a year. And those decks are, like, the decks that people that, like, want to get into standard, don't have a lot of money, just want to ranch some guy that's playing a really expensive deck and just can win because he draws, like, the exact perfect creatures or whatever. Like, those decks don't exist right now, and I think that's a big part of the reason why some people just are just not happy with what's going on. Anyone else sort of want to chime in about attendance, Jeff or Mike? No, I don't have local players. With regards to like Wizards Tower, I know Standard is like the end all be all. Like we've never been not successful with Standard. Um, it's the number one thing within Wizards Tower for sure. And it's all like it's pretty much opposite for us. Where Legacy EDH, it just doesn't even see daylight for us. 
So that's why, as you can tell by Louisville, we are stocking up on standard very, very aggressively. Um, and we still do that on a GP basis. So standard's never been an issue. The standard showdown never really improved attendance because it's always been quite good because we have like a player of the month. We have like a player of the year. So it's always standard with regards to like us in our territory. I know Toronto and Montreal, which is close by, is almost the same thing, but I can't speak on behalf of like the retail stores. I will say one of the things I've noticed locally is that the player base has like started to mature. And as people invest more money in Magic, they just end up with more cards that they can trade into bigger cards. So the like getting a modern deck from nothing is pretty expensive, but getting a modern deck from like half of a standard deck from two standard rotations ago makes it a lot more reasonable. And a lot of the people that you know started out playing when Return of Ravnica came out, they've just kept a lot of the cards that they were played with and and with the fetches and the shocks now you kind of have like almost enough to make a deck in modern and i feel like a lot more people are playing modern here but it's a little weird orlando's like has a lot of transplants and has a lot of people that go to the big colleges in the area so the player base fluctuates a lot depending on whether or not school is in session and then what's popular is really dependent on what they brought from wherever they're from Um, there's like way too many goddamn stores in Orlando. Don't open a store here. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, there's a lot of shops locally that are starting to get squeezed out, and it's pretty interesting to see. Oh, I know why Paul's not working. Hey, Paul, you need to go to your programs and you need to uh, get rid of XSplit because it is currently taking over your stuff, and then you could unmute your mic. Um, but yeah, it's like been interesting to see the evolution of magic and like magic finance over the last four to five years i guess like that's when medina started writing his articles i would guess and like people started paying more attention to what do you think this is worth what do you think this is worth stuff like that um i actually I would love to hear, i sorry i actually would love to hear paul weigh on this if he ever gets his shit fixed because yeah, MT- shit together because MTG deals has been like one of uh, they've been in the industry longer than like any of us. I think like I don't know how long Wizard Tower has been doing this, but um, but like MTG deals has been a mainstay on the GP circuit for like since I started attending Grand Prix in 2013, and they were at like literally every Grand Prix I, I was at. So, oh, it's working, Paul. Say something, Paul. You're so close. You can do it. Say a word, Paul. We heard you. I didn't hear him. I just saw his his X split picture come up. He knocked something on the ground, and I heard it. All right. Well, apparently his mic is still dead. Um, Mike, is there anything going on like with your shop that you want to talk about b- before we start wrapping this up? Since it's been like forty minutes, forty five minutes. Um. Uh. So we do a lot of big legacy stuff, and I will plug Eternal Extravaganza number six, which is one of the largest legacy events in the country. Date is March 18th and March 19th. 18th is legacy. It's a like a $15,000 or $20,000 prize pool legacy event in Baltimore, Maryland, March 18th this year. EEMagic.com for more info. Ed, what is Kerwan's uh, Gaming doing that we should know about? 
I will be in San Jose. Um, I'll be playing a booth there, actually. But I will be there. We'll be there running our usual hustle. Uh, that's at the end of this month. Uh, first crack at Aether Revolt, uh, which I which looks is starting to look like a pretty sweet set. Um, hopefully, with the new bands um, and Aether Revolt coming in, that'll kind of revitalize Standard, um, especially interest for a lot of people. I think that's... I think interest in standard has been definitely an all-time low in the past like few months. So hopefully it'll revitalize it. And Jeffrey, what is wizards tower doing lately that we should keep an eye out for? Are you guys vending any GPs or any tournaments coming up? So tower will be at, as mentioned, GP Orlando, followed by GP Richmond, followed by GP Las Vegas. But again, we're just trying to focus on like the technology and make better our technology used at GPs and try to be unique and ahead of the game. And Jim, what are you getting yourself into now that you've sort of said, fuck this to competitive magic? Uh, I bought like 36 of the St. Mark foil Island from Doug because I'm a fucking casual and I'm building an EDH deck. Um, I'll be a green pre Orlando in some capacity. I have like a bunch of people that are flying down and staying at my house because it's cheaper than a hotel. So I figure I might as well show up. I have no idea if I'm playing the main event or any events, but I'll be there. You can find me by my beard, the only bearded man in Florida. And I'm going to go ahead and slip my wrist because the one of the shops I run, Valhalla's Gate, is probably not going to even run a pre-release because the roads are basically impassable. And like everyone who already bought pre-release kits doesn't want to wait till next week because they can just buy boxes instead. So we're, we're getting burned on pre-release kits and like, there's literally shops in St. Louis that are going out of business because of this. So I find it pretty interesting. Uh, thanks for watching Cartel Aristocrats After Hours, guys. We'll be back with our regularly scheduled uh, cast number 38 next Monday. And the, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's all that this cast is going on. Uh, we appreciate the people that were commenting live on YouTube, and we appreciate our SoundCloud and iTunes listeners as well. Have a good one. And as always, you can find us on Cartel underscore finance on Twitter.